I've struggled with writer's block off and on for like years, and I hate it so much. Hate it so much. And I've had different people, writers that I've read to try to understand what's happening to me. One guy, one guy said he stopped preaching altogether because he had nothing left to say. And I thought, oh my word, that's so sad. Stopped preaching. He quit. He quit what he was made to do because he went through a season where he said, I have nothing to say. Instead of just recognizing that's okay. That's okay. I heard John Mayer the other day say that how he understands writer's block, because it's his job to write amazing music, and then every time you release a new album, you want it to be as good, if not better, than your previous album. And not just as good, but you, you hope that the people get it too. So what does that even mean? And then you're struggling with being true to your own sensibilities and your own sense of what is a good song, which has changed since you were 16 and 17. And will they go with me if I take on, if I go on a journey? All that stuff. So he said, writer's block is not a failure of you having good ideas. Writer's block is you have your inner speaker, so to speak, your inner creator, and you have an inner critic. And when you have writer's block, your inner critic hates everything you're saying. And when you have writer's block, you're listening to the inner critic that hates what you're saying. And he says, what I now do is I write songs I hate because how arrogant is it of me to judge what my inner creator wants to bring forth? It's so arrogant. He goes, I write songs that I hate. And then oftentimes, the hit songs that I learned to appreciate years later. And I didn't write it to be a hit. I wrote it by just being unjudgmental of what wants to come out of me. Even if it's like, oh, that's too simple. That's so, that's so sincere. It's not even poetic. It's just blunt. It's just simple melody. Can't write something better. I wanted, to, I wanted to say this. I wanted to say that. But that's what it is. When he said that, I realized that some people are going to hear that and they're going to say, that's, he's such a sellout. But what I heard was somebody who's mature, who has learned how to make every single day, to write every single day, to show up and do what he's here to do every single day and not get his ego so inflated that it freezes him up and he can't perform. But, and I thought, oh my word, that applies to so, that's, it sounds like we're talking about writer's block, but we're not talking about writer's block. We're not talking about music. He's talking about music. But I'm hearing it about so much more. How many times have you not wanted to open your big fat mouth and speak to other humans because you don't like your contributions to the, to the circle? Yep. They should be better. They should be smarter. They should be wiser. They should be more interesting. They should be more funny. And that voice, that inner critic, that's what writer's block is, is when we listen when that inner critic's voice gets louder than the inner creator. But those moments when you think it's really awesome, who knows if it's really awesome, but what it is in those moments is the critic is not in the way. And if we'll learn how to ignore the critic, more like, it's more likely we'll stop interrupting the flow. We'll get more stuff out there. They say the number one thing you can do to improve 
is just make a lot of stuff. Like if I gave you an assignment and I said make, make a perfect, if I gave each one in the room a, clay, a lump of clay, and I said make me a coffee cup, you have an hour. You guys would be trying to make one perfect <laughs> coffee cup. Stay so this is not going to happen. I thought you guys But if I gave you guys all day and I said make me 10 coffee cups, I don't care how good they are. Just make me 10. By the time you made the 10th one, you guys would be starting to make some coffee cups. You weren't even, if I said make one perfect one, it's going to be crappier than the the 10th one you made with zero effort to, to try to make it perfect. You were just making coffee cups. Because the best thing you can do to make good stuff is to constantly make stuff. But you're not going to constantly make stuff if that inner critic is so, is standing there going, this sucks. I, I thought that was so helpful. It's almost like the inner critic is like Satan. Hmm. It's like accusing you. See what I mean how this has broad applications? We flow with the Lord in this place of no judgment and full acceptance. And he's, we're not, he's not perfectionistic. So allows it. We're okay with mistakes as Christians. We're okay making mistakes. Unless we're very legalistic. And it's like, oh, then that gives us the freedom to keep trying and keep growing. And the more we walk with the Lord, the more we, oh, I'm hearing his voice. But imagine if I said, Danielle, give one perfect prophecy. Oh, that would just be fraught with anxiety. But if I said, I require you, just as a friend, as a challenge, to, to give two prophetic words per week. At the end of a year, and I don't care if they're amazing, just something, anything you hear, any little nugget. It doesn't even have to be a full thought. Just be an image or a phrase or anything that comes into your head that you might, just a whisper of a whisper of a whisper. By the end of a year, she did two a week. That girl would just be flowing in that thing. She'd hear so stinking accurately, you know? Writer's block, John Mayer. Next one. Uh, there's this boxer I was watching. He was like playing with his, en- his opponents. He would, <laughs> he would put his hands down and like walk up to them and wait for them to swing and then be like this. And then he would just kind of jump around like that with his hands down. Yeah. And even when he was like in his 40s, he was notorious for having the most incredibly fast reflexes. And they were like, look at him. He's, it just looks like he doesn't even care. That's what the announcer's saying. It just looks like he doesn't even care. And what they, what they said is, he, he kind of doesn't. He loves the fight. He doesn't care if he gets the title. He doesn't care if his name goes down as his, his wins and losses is going to be, uh, he just loves to go out there and entertain the people. Because when he starts doing that crazy stuff, which is so dumb, every, like that's the first thing the guy says when at the beginning of the boxing match. You know what he says? Protect yourself at all times. Let's have a clean fight. Go. That's what that, protect yourself at all times. And he's like, hands down. Go ahead. Go ahead. But what he's doing is then he's reading you. And when you go to swing, he's like, boom. And he's just in flow because of the thing we talked about before. The art kids, remember from the paintings? Hey, kids, make a bunch of art just for fun. And all the kids started to love making art. And then after a couple weeks, they introduced rewards for the best. And the next thing you know, nobody likes it anymore. 
unless it's perfect, unless it's good enough to win an award. And all the joy has just gone from it because we're no longer in the moment. We're no longer in flow. We're listening to that inner critic again. And the critic is telling us it's not good enough and we get all locked up. Are you guys hearing me? I don't even know what we're talking about yet tonight. You know what I mean? I, I know we're talking about something tonight, but I don't know exactly what it means. Yoda says to Luke Skywalker on Dagobah, he's too old to begin the training. And why? Why is he too old? And, and, and it's too old because the training requires a whole shift in his mindset. And he has this crazy quote, never, if, if Kate was here, she'd finish the whole quote just with me saying the word never. Never was his mind, because he's talking to Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan's ghost, Yoda is, is communing with the saints, so to speak. And he says, he's too old. Well, I was also the way that he, you know, wasn't so great when you started training me. Ah, never was his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Constantly somewhere else, not doing the art, not enjoying the moment as a silly boxer, just having fun, not writing the song and just letting it be what it is. He's constantly obsessing over the crowd and the wins and the, am I good enough? Am I failing? Is anyone going to love me? These big, oh, what's going to happen? What's my future? Just not present. My mentor who baptized me saw that I was, as a young Christian, very intense. And I thought that that intensity was what all Christians should be like. And I was really kind of frustrated with the lack of intensity I thought I perceived in the rest of the believers in my church. Like I remember staying after church one day, everyone else goes home, and I spent the whole afternoon in the sanctuary like seeking God. Actually, I still remember some of the verses I, that the Lord was like, look at this one. But I just was like, let's go. So Conrad said to me, he told me the story of the gardener and the second coming. Gardener's out with a hoe in the garden and he's hoeing rows to plant. He's planting his garden. And the young man comes up and says, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight, how would you be spending today? And of course, I'm listening to Conrad and I'm like wanting to jump out of my shoes to answer the question you get out there and hit the streets and you would implore everybody to get saved right now. And Conrad says, the old man leaned on his, on his garden implement, because I don't like to say the word hoe a whole lot. It's, it's, you get it. <laughs> Can't say he leaned on his hoe in 2023 without people going, oh, that's not appropriate. Now I said it all out loud, so there it is, I ruined it. So he's leaning on his garden tool and he's just quietly and calmly thinking, Jesus coming back tonight. How would I spend the rest of the evening? And he looks at his garden and he says, I think I have time to finish this. Oh, that story ticked me off. 
It made me so mad at Conrad, at the fictional old man. <laughs> like, Conrad, what's... I get what the old man is saying. Hey, hey, I'll plant the garden there. <laughs> and in my mind... I'll plant seeds. That doesn't matter. In light of eternity, that doesn't matter. And in my pastor's mind, Tim's so young, he's so urgent, and he has what counts as spiritual and what counts as not spiritual, so out of proportion that he, he's robbed... The sacredness of... Well, I don't need to explain it to you. Do I? I don't, you right? He's, Tim's robbed the sacredness of ordinary life of what it really is. And he's made Christianity not about living in the glory of the Lord a true human life in tranquility and gratitude. And he's turned it into some sort of end of the world thing where there's a heaven and a hell and I have this urgent task and all that matters is getting folks saved. Explain. Mm, now I see what you mean. Yeah. And what are, and what you win people with, you win them too. So now instead of God's beautiful life's amazing, there's peace. We can get off the treadmill of the rat race. And we can enter into this glory that is imperfect life in a fallen world, but still with Jesus. And we can, we can, we can abide and we can have peace and we can have hope. Now, now I have some, I have a lifestyle that is good news in addition to a message that's good news. But the way I was thinking, oh, I'm over explaining. Okay. But, okay. Somehow that relates to what I'm talking about of getting into the flow and not listening to the inner critic. I thought, I had an inner critic that said, more, harder, better. If you're singing, that little inner critic would be like, sing louder. If you're dancing, that inner critic would be like, the Lord's worthier than that, dance harder. You can't, you can't even just be, be God's because the inner critic is armed with Bible verses too. And he's using God's truth to torture you. And it's never enough. Now you're, you're in church, but it's still never enough. And it's like, oh my word, this is, Jesus mastered that voice. He didn't, he didn't give that, he knew that wasn't the Father. And he didn't live from that voice. In fact, he spent 30 years not even achieving anything that, that, he spent 30 years planting a garden when souls were dying all around him. Do you know what I mean? He was a carpenter 30 years. And then the Father said at, the, at his baptism, you're my son, I'm pleased with you. Guys, he hadn't healed one person yet. He hadn't opened one blind eye yet. He hadn't, do you understand? Yep. The father's affection was not, oh my word, you've done such a great job being such a heroic, ze- so much zeal, that's my boy. He hadn't done anything yet. Oh, actually he had. He had just been a good son who enjoyed God and lived a regular human life. It was already spiritual. Okay, next one. Yeah. running in front of me on the street. You know, that must be how God sees me. 
I totally relate to that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't scroll the feed much, but that's great for you to report. Because you care about them, and they're being so ridiculous. Like we're running the wrong way. I had to scroll one time. Oh no. Oh no. I'm like crying. I'm like, God, God, I hope he's okay. I love him for a few years. He's not okay. Well, he got up. <laughs> that story ended way better than I expected. Right. He hit the bottom of my car so many you did, times. You did not hit him. You didn't like run him over. All you Me did his yelling at squirrels in the street to move so they don't die is probably the same feeling God has watching me live my life most days. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm like, bro, you might want to move because I'm not slowing down. Yes. (laughs) Here's some verses that I've been thinking about, obviously for a lot of years, and kind of wondering what they mean. And I honestly still kind of wonder what they mean. I feel like I have some vague idea. The eye, this is Jesus, words words of Jesus in bright red. The eye is the lamp of the body. That, that, that's a week of meditation on that. The eye is the lamp of the body. End thought. Are, are you, do I need to unpack it? I feel like somebody's like, say more words. What you focus on, what you look at, what you take in, is what? How did you say it? Is what you're putting in your spirit. I'll finish reading. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So here's how I'm thinking about it right now. We're granted the freedom to look at what we want to look at, what we choose to look at. We're granted the freedom to think about what we decide to think about. We can focus on what we decide to focus on. We can dwell on the things we choose to dwell on. Not always immediately, not always immediately, but over time, what we ingest as our mental diet, right? You put certain things into your mouth and occasionally you allow yourself a donut, unless you're very naughty, and then you allow yourself lots of donuts very often as a regular part of your food. And if you do that, diabetes, diabetes, diabetes. I hope Evelina wasn't hurt by me. She was. I love pronouncing it that way. I, I, like, it feels wrong to say diabetes. I'm like, diabetes? That's so, you had an opportunity for a wonderful diabetes. But in the same way that, that what you eat, you are what you eat. That's like, that is not metaphor. 
That is physically true. It's scientifically true. Your body can, is made up of the material that you put into your mouth, chew up, push through your intestines, and poop out into the toilet. I mean, not the stuff. Andrew won after Dan Moeller because they were like. This is true. This is true. You are what you eat. And, and spiritually, and don't get on the rabbit trail, and spiritually, you are what you take into your mind. And Jesus is talking about the eye as what you choose to focus your attention on. That's the, we, our eyes, humans, there's so much going on here. So much going on. Too much is happening here for me to absorb all of it. So what we do as humans, as a survival strategy, is we learn to focus. We learn to restrict our attention to a to what we deem relevant in our surroundings. We don't see what's around us. We see what we believe is relevant around us. We see what we're trained to see. We notice not what's there. We notice what we're prepared to notice. That's so much more true than I think you know. There's a book I would recommend called On Looking, where a lady took a walk around the block with her dog, and she learned to see through the nose, not her eyes, through the nose of her dog. She took a walk around the, on the, around the block with a blind lady. She learned to see through her ears and through her body's senses. She took a walk around the block with a doctor, and she learned to see people through how they hold themselves and how their gait is. She, and so on and so forth. Every, she took all the, a geologist, and she's learned to look at the, the stones in the bricks and in the asphalt totally differently. She took a walk around the block with someone who was an insect specialist, and she learned, oh my word, there's a zoo in my block in New York City. And, and so on and so forth. And every new specialist that she went on a walk around the block with saw something completely new that she had never seen before that was there all along. Imagine if the Holy Spirit trains us to take a walk around the block of our little lives. Go for it. So, okay. So it's like, it's like we have tunnel vision. Okay. So it's like surrounding is like, like sometimes we just need to have, sometimes it's good to know our surrounding, but sometimes it's good that we just need to have tunnel vision and just keep our eyes, keep our eyes focused on mm. what's right here. Amen. Not everything that's going on around here. Do you remember when the news was a half an hour? Do you remember that, Stan? When we were kids, the news was a half an hour. So you had a half an hour of bad news about everything in the world, a half, limited to a half an hour. And then after that, (sighs) jokes again. Jokes. Yeah, then then back to like, not bad news. It turns out that then it went to the 24-hour news cycle, and then Twitter decided to make everyone's opinion count as news. So we don't just get the news, we get your interpretation of the news and how you feel about it. And it's what everyone, and it becomes this, I don't, I don't, I, sometimes I'm dumb enough and I go on Twitter and then I go, I can't handle it. It does something bad to my spirit and I have to get off of there. Facebook doesn't really do that for me anymore because I've just unfollowed everyone who, who upset me too badly. No, I didn't unfriend them. And I didn't divorce them and I didn't curse their names as evil. I just choose, I choose not to look at things that make me an evil person. And sometimes focusing on the negative, it will fill your body with negative anxious energy. And the algorithms are designed to hold you. 
They're, not, they're designed to hold you so they can make money off you. That's their goal. And to, they, they know humans, humans will stay longer if, we may, if you make us angry or afraid. Whatever makes people angry or afraid will make them click and stay longer because they want to know more about this outrageous, terrible, evil thing. I don't care if it's liberals or conservatives or just who, your friends. Angry and afraid will draw humans in and make us emotional and make us care and will get us, oh, yes, yes. It's like, okay, the eye is the lamp of the body. And I cannot afford, I cannot afford to take another walk around the block with this person and this spirit as my tutor training me to what to look for and what to notice. It's not going to lead to good fruit. In fact, it's going to be really hard to have good fruit if, if I'm yoked to that, that mindset. It's like not even real. Yes, it is real. No, the evidence supports it, but the devil used lots of facts to try to tempt and deceive Jesus in the temptation, didn't he? He used lots of facts. So the devil uses facts to deceive. And, and Jesus can make up stories to plant the truth in people. Anyway, okay. Yes, sir. So when you were talking about the lady who walked around the block, yeah, 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 and um, she walked with a doctor, and right? All the people. Kind of what Stan was telling about the tunnel vision. Yes. Why well, have schizophrenia? So mine is like times ten differently because like extra is there. So how does that have to like you know like? That would be an interesting chapter in her book. That would be. I mean, I see like ten times extra other people, you know, hallucination and everything, or hearing voices. So like, how would that be like? Walk around the block would be way different than the average Joe, you know. You know what I mean? Or that, I do. That makes sense. I don't have your answer, no, but I, but I, I think that would have made for an additional chapter that I hadn't considered. In her book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you can walk around the block a normal person like look a bird or that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I walk around like look a dragon or whatever, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I had a tie with that or not? Because when you walk on a doctor, they see people, the geologists study the rocks. Right. I, mean? I believe you. Yeah. That's a fascinating point, and I don't have an answer to that right now. I didn't know that would have to make sense with the lady walking the block, and he gets to a friend against, like, hey, I see this and that, and you don't, and, like, you know. You know what I mean? That makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. that does make sense. Okay. I was thinking, I was like, what about with me, you know? Right. People like me. I, let, let me consider that before I try to respond, because off the top of my head, I don't have a good response. I wasn't sure if it made sense or not, but... It makes that. sense. Okay. It makes perfect that, sense. That just, yeah, you just got me kind of, I'm like, you were talking yeah. about the lamp of the body. Yeah. I was thinking about when you were saying about the algorithms, how, like, with my struggles with, like, intrusive thoughts and stuff mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. our minds definitely have an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And you have to, yep. like, re- yep. unfollow things in your mind. Almost, like, similar to social media. That's good. Kind of like a mental reset. Yeah. Like, I remember, I, w- I would think about dying probably, like, I don't know, a thousand times a yeah. day. Because it was just intrusive. Yep. Over and over and over again. And in yep. place of that intrusive thought, I would have to say, out not out loud, but in my mind, in my mind's eye, I would see it and I'd say, um, like, a scripture or whatever to replace it. So it's like you're unfollowing that thought and you're changing the algorithm in your brain. Too. I pound my steering wheel and I yell out loud, no, in Jesus' name, that will never happen yeah, for, 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 like, my, for my version of them. But yeah, keep, right. yeah. But then like, 
like even like secular like psychologists and stuff like they say even the negative response to it like the canceling it out gives it attention yeah you're right he's like so you're right just you need to diffuse it and like completely like unfollow it like that's so interesting you're saying the negative is 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 gives it power because when we are told great job you got the answer right on a test our brain will take the right answer and will store it in our memory banks more securely and even if it's just a true or false if we get it wrong the negative the negative emotional reaction that we have to getting it wrong we like don't retain which is, so in other words the positive approach is stickier at changing us than a no approach sowing the truth Oh well, so what? There it is. Instead yeah. Of being like, yeah. Well, what if I die this way? Like you're, yeah. you're spiraling into the algorithm. Yep. And so your brain is just going to keep giving you more and more and more. I love that. Hold that thought, and we're going to come back to it at the end when when we get to. Uh, well, who knows if it's the end? This lady, Maria Bamford, because she hears a lot of voices. Okay, so this is Philippians four eight. Think about this in the context of Jesus saying, your eye is the lamp of your body. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. You can't curse the darkness and make it go away, but you can light a candle and sing a beautiful song to a beautiful God and let his beauty overtake you. Next verse, 2 Corinthians 3. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, talking about whenever someone turns to Jesus, the veil that's over our minds as we are reading the Old Testament is taken away. And now in the Old Testament, as we trust Jesus and see Jesus, We see Jesus everywhere, so I'm going to read it. Verse 17, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see the Lord and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us. He makes us. We don't make us. The Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him, as we're changed into his glorious image. So notice who's doing the changing of us. We are not. We are doing, but we are in charge of something. We are looking at Jesus, and in the face of Jesus, we're seeing the heart of the Father. And the more we stare at the heart of the Father, the more God changes us and beautifies us. We look at him, we become like him. We look at other things, we look at negative things, we become infected by and affected by. Our, our focus is absolutely, our, that's our part in the equation. That's our part in the equation. Colossians 3 says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ. In other words, it's not something we're, we're, it's not something we're aiming to accomplish, it's happened. But since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about, so there's a phrase, set your sights. 
Here's another phrase. Think about. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden. It's hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. He's revealed to you now. He's going to be revealed to the whole world later. But as you and I look at the Christ who is veiled from the world right now, the Christ who is veiled from the world right now becomes visible in our lives, in the world right now. But we get to choose what we focus on. Again, not immediately and not completely, because the mind I don't, I'm not able to fully control my mind like that, but I can affect over time the direction of it so substantially that it is totally changed. Does that make sense? Like if I'm being tempted, I can't just say, I'm not going to be tempted by that. I'm not going to be tempted by that. I'm not going to be tempted by that. But I can reform the mind over a longer period of time to become the kind of person who is not even honestly tempted by that anymore. Like I'm not tempted to go rob, rob a bank. That's not, that doesn't, I would have to, I would have to go, I would have to go through a bunch of layers of stuff to get open to that being a possibility. You know what I mean? Now, there is some embarrassing stuff that I'm still tempted by. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen. But there's still some pretty embarrassing stuff I'm tempted by, you know. I wish somebody gave me credit for that deep thought that I had, and they didn't even give me credit. It's like, oh, my word, Tim, you're still a baby after all this time. Why would you care? All that should matter to you is whether Jesus gets credit for who he is. Plus, the whole point of the comment you made was about his beauty anyway, but you need them to go, you're so helpful. That kind of stuff's embarrassing, you know. That's right. Okay, phones and cocaine rats. We already said the algorithm is designed to hold us as long as possible. And that doesn't even matter what app we're talking about. Like, they're all designed to keep us on that app. That's why they're so upset when a new one comes out and, oh, no, what are we going to do? YouTube, help us, TikTok is killing us. And then they're like, we'll just do TikTok, too. (laughs) They do, yeah. And I was like, I refuse to watch YouTube shorts. Now guess what I'm doing? Getting sucked into watching YouTube shorts, and I didn't even mean to. I go, what is that? And I watch it, and then I swipe up to the next one, and I swipe up. What am I doing? I'm just waiting for my fried chicken to be done frying. And there it is. It, would you add up? it was 24 minutes I watched of YouTube shorts tonight. I didn't even mean to. It went like that, because they're all little minutes. Is there, these, these mini muffins, they don't even have calories, because they're mini. Then you ate a whole bag of them. I loved Vine. I loved Vine. I was sad when it went away. Twitter killed it because they were threatened by it. Yeah. So dopamine. The reason that YouTube shorts, the reason that TikTok is so sticky and so, is because it gives you such a sense of a whole story in one minute. And that is such a quick sense of fulfillment, right? When you set out to accomplish a task, and you get immediate success, your brain goes, just the idea that you got up and went to the fridge to look if there was food. The getting up and going gave your brain a little bit of a tiny boost of, oh, maybe there's something here. And then you stand there, and you can hear the voice of your parents saying, shut that thing, you're killing the Eskimos, or whatever. I don't even know what they're... I don't, don't you remember that when we were kids? Shut the door. Yeah, I don't even understand. I don't even get it. But now I look at it and I go, why is the refrigerator standing upright 
Why is it not laying down? If you open it and it's laying down, all that cold air just sits there like it's just sitting. But if you lay open, it's standing upright. You open it, it all just drains out onto your kitchen floor. If you could see temperature, you would be horrified and you would all, we would be all crying. Okay, that's an off side point. But just getting up and going somewhere with intentionality gives your brain a little burst of dopamine. Anything you do with intentionality and purpose where you can see yourself making measurable progress, which is why we like reading lists, articles that are lists, they make us feel like we're, we're making progress. We're on step five already. We're almost done. Oh, good. It's just weird how that works. People like lists. So if I was smart, this would be all numbered. Cocaine and rats. They give rats, in, I don't know who these people are who run these tests. Okay. They're like, let's put rats in cages. And if they'll perform a series of tasks, pull this lever and do this thing, we'll give you a little hit of cocaine. You can eat it. You'll get high. And then you'll feel great. And it, and it fires the same uh, dopamine receptors that living with intentional purpose fires, right? So an addict, a drug addict, feels like they're accomplishing something without actually having to accomplish anything. But it's the brain getting sent the same chemical rewards that are supposed to accompany doing things that are good for my survival and well-being. I'm supposed to go kill an animal and bring it home and go, here is food, and instead, I go out and I hunt for something else, and it gives me a similar burst or, or a stronger one. So these rats in these cages, they perform a task, they get a hit of cocaine. They get, they get so freaking coke addicted that they're, they'll just, it's all they live for. It's all they live for. Did you know it's impossible to get rats addicted to cocaine if they're in the wild? It can't be done. They don't care. They're constantly getting their dopamine receptors Thrilled because they searched for food and found it, burrowed and, and found material that's good for a nest, explored territory and related and found a mate. All these activities that rats do out in the wild, in the real world, that are physically embodied actions that pertain to their survival, give those brains enough dopamine hit that cocaine doesn't speak to them. To get them addicted, you have to put them in a cage and take them out of their natural environment and get them passive so they have nothing to live for then you can get them addicted. And I picture kids in homes, rats in a cage with phones. The phones are dopamine drips. It's cocaine. And, it's, and you know what it does? If you look at porn and you get off, your brain has a pleasure and a satisfaction thing that says, ah, and you are now demotivated. You're not seeking a mate. You're not taking a risk. You're not walking across the room. You're jerking off, and then you're done. This generation has less sex with real people in the real world than any generation polled in like modern numbers that, we, that we've looked at. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, good. Less sexually transmitted diseases and unprepared pregnancies. But on the other hand, you're like, oh, my word, that's devastating for their relationships long term. Because the brain is getting the reward that's supposed to come after you risk relationship and getting shut down and learning how to navigate the difficulty of living with a real human who has thoughts and feelings and must be cared for. I'll just watch other people have sex on a video. Oh, my word. It's, it's, it's a rat in a cage. Those natural desires that are designed to be... You get me. I don't even have to finish. And it leaves us overstimulated and anxious. I think we're in a generation that is overstimulated 
and anxious. And isolated. The rats are isolated. They're bored. They have nothing to live for. There's no relationship. There's no fellowship. Mm. There's no community. Yeah. And no meaningful There's work. There's no one who knows you. No one who cares. No one who... Except some weird scientists that just keep giving you cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we're the rats in the cage. So overstimulated and anxious. I'm going to just read what I have here. Some think they need their phones because without their phones, the social anxiety is just too much to handle. Some of us think we can't get to sleep without our phones because our thoughts are too much to handle. Some of us don't know how to sit still and be in silence because our feelings and our memories and our life story is too much to handle. Some of us don't know what it's like to do only one thing at a time. Well, when you have a brain like mine, you have a thousand people. And some young people, and some young people, it, it's not their phone. Maybe it's marijuana. I cannot get through a month without smoking pot. I cannot get through a week without smoking pot to deal with my anxiety. And what's crazy is if we were to take a month. Not some of you guys are. Who are you talking to? I don't even know. If we were to take a month and not use these coping mechanisms that we think are helping our anxiety, I suspect our anxiety would actually go down instead of up. I'll read more what I wrote. So why are we running away from our real lives? What's wrong with being here? What's wrong with being you? Why do we run away from the ancient Christian sacred practice of occasional solitude, silence, and stillness? I think we're doing okay at fellowship, conversation, and serving. Fellowship, conversation, and serving are the opposites of silence and solitude and stillness. So we're doing okay at the active ones because they're active. As long as we keep moving, we're going to make it help. Just keep moving. And the purpose of solitude is not to escape from others. The purpose of solitude is to be present to yourself and God. And when we're with ourselves, we find out what's really marked us, what's really scarred us, what we're carrying But in this phone-addicted age in which we live, we're so anxious and so overstimulated and so driven that we replace silence with noise-canceling earbuds. Like We're like, that's our silence. Noise-canceling earbuds that fill our hearts with more noise. And instead of listening to our inner voice, which is what solitude is really about, we feast at an all-you-can-eat digital buffet of content. So silence and solitude and stillness, they're not about avoiding others and activity because those are bad. Those aren't even bad things. They're actually about temporarily making space to listen to our soul so that we can honestly engage with God. So my questions are things like, what are we so afraid of? And why is the idea or the prospect of spending 24 hours alone and silent That means don't talk, not even out loud to God. Why is the prospect of 24 hours alone and silent 
with no phone. Scary. Because some people, they hear that and they would be like, sign me up today. But probably more people would be like, I will give you $100 to not. You know? Like when somebody invites me to a loud concert, I will pay you $100 for you to go without me. That's me. Come on, Tim. I'm dead serious. My, my hearing as a musician is far more important to me than watching somebody else sing real loud in my face. So what are we so scared of? Slay the dragon that burned you. The dragon is an ancient myth. It's in like so many cultures. It's weird. Okay. The, by myth, I don't mean it's a lie. By myth, I mean a story that has deep meaning that appeals to people's core sense of how to put the world together and make sense of the world. So the dragon myth is, is like transcultural and really old. And just think for a second about what a dragon is and what a dragon might represent. A dragon pillages towns. It has no mercy. It has no compassion. We're not even sure what motivates the dragon. Often the dragon is smart, smarter than people. It's cunning. It can speak weirdly. You're hearing serpent themes, right? It can burn you. It can breathe fire. It's, in other words, what comes out of its mouth can harm you. It's not sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. This thing breathes fire, and that fire can destroy you utterly. So stay away from it. Don't let it just, you have, just avoid it is the common lot. It has armor, thick skin and scales. Its tail can strike you even when you thought you were in, oh, free from its mouth. And it can fly. For crying out loud, it can fly. It's not okay. But here's the other thing about dragons. They almost always have a lair. And in their lair is a treasure. Think about that. Why? Why in all these stories is the dragon guarding a treasure? And why in all these stories is, is everyone waiting for a hero to kill the dragon? Like, why is that the story? So what are we hiding from? I think we're hiding from our dragons. What is silence, solitude, and stillness going to teach us? It's going to teach us how the dragons burned us, bit us, broke us, and left us living, cowering in fear, with our defenses up, with our high walls, living a different life than we would have lived if we didn't think he was going to hurt us. Living our whole lives in a secure and safe fortress we built, like a, like a band where it's, it was very cool to hate back in the day. My own prison was the song, and the band was Creed. Do you remember the band? I've created my own prison. Great song, great singer, and yes, I do believe a great band. Much hated, kind of like Nickelback. It's cool to hate them. It's cool to hate them. It's cool to hate them. So in silence and solitude, we get in touch with stuff we don't want to look at. I don't want to face this thing. I don't want to know about the dragon. I don't want to think about the dragon that burned me. Much less do I want to arm myself and go on a hunt for the dragon 
Are you crazy? My goal for the rest of my life is to be safe. I just don't want to hurt anymore. I don't care about being a hero. I don't think I'm capable of it. Just leave me alone. And we even convince ourselves that we always wanted to live in this town with the high walls, that we never wanted to go be a hero, that we didn't ever care about the treasure in the first place. We convince ourselves to settle for a life hiding. We actually convince ourselves we wanted this life. This was the one. That's the, this is the real life. And Jordan Peterson, he assigns people to write their life story out, he, to write it out. Even if you're not a writer, he wants you to write out your life story. He wants you to narrate your pain and your dreams and your story and who influenced you and who hurt you and all that you did wrong and all that you did right, the things that are relevant to you. He wants you to write out your story because something about an examined life, something about facing the truth, something about looking at the dragon that burned you, something about facing yourself, something about truth is redemptive. It's so Christian, isn't it? The truth will make you free. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us. Something about the truth, the truth of who you are, the story of your life, and the truth of who you are. There's two, two sentences I have in my notes. One of them is the story of your life and the truth of who you are, and the other one is the story of Jesus and the truth of who God is. And the deeper we go in Jesus the more impossible it is for us to tell where our story ends and his story starts. And the more impossible it is for us to not see ourselves in his story and not see him in our story, the deeper we go with him. And that's not a fiction. That's not wishful thinking. That's the truth. In Harry Potter, everyone is so stinking scared of Voldemort, they call him he who must not be named. If you say Voldemort in a public space, someone will clap their hand over your mouth and say, we don't say that name. They're so terrified of the dragon. They're so terrified. And of course, you know, Harry Potter says the name. And so do a bunch of other cool characters along the road. Gary Gallman is a, is a comedian. He, he did a special called The Great Depression about his depression, about how it almost killed him. And it's hilarious and made me cry. And there's something about him, fa- it, it, not just facing his depression, but talking about it openly and publicly. And he was talking about the anti-depression medication and the electroconvulsive therapy that he did to help rewire his brain and how 100 years ago he'd be dead or in an insane asylum right now. But instead, he's still married to a wife and has a career, and it's crazy. And he says, you know, people ask me, Gary, aren't you worried about the side effects of these, of this pill, these pills you're on? And he says, you mean dry mouth and impotence? Oh, yeah. I'm so worried about having to take a drink of water. And I was having so much sex curled up in the fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> His special makes you laugh, makes you cry. And I'm so glad he put it out there because I think so many Americans, so many humans, feel like he felt, but they don't know how to get help. By him, Gary Gullman, and the special was called The Great Depression. 
it, it affected me big time. Another, another uh, comedian, I love comedians that speak the truth. There's something funny and helpful about truth. Maria Bamford, she is probably borderline, she's strongly OCD, strongly OCD. And I'm not talking about she needs to have things organized. I mean she has compulsions. Real OCD is obsessive compulsions. And here's a song she wrote. If I keep the kitchen floor clean, no one will die. As long as I clench my fists at on intervals, then the darkness within me won't force me to do anything inappropriately violent or sexual at dinner parties. As long as I keep humming a tune, I won't turn game. It can't get you if you're singing a song. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. She's be- Those are not jokes, guys. She tells them on stage like they're jokes. They're for 100% true. And there's something about her honesty and her face in that truth that I just love so much. It feels so redemptive. And she would say, I'm not a Christian. In fact, she says she doesn't believe in God. And she says, this next bit I'm going to say, you're going to disagree with me because you're Christians, but just bask in the glory that I'm wrong. And I love that too. It's why I try to include my real stories in my sermons. I wonder if she realizes it. She, she, Sure, her mom's a devout Christian, and she talks about faith in her specials. So I try to include my real self in my sermons. And it's not because I want my sermons to be about me. I never want my sermons to be about me. I preach Jesus. But I find it almost impossible to preach Jesus without investing me in it. Because I know Jesus through my life. I know Jesus through my story. I know Jesus through my experiences. I know Jesus through my thinking. I don't know how to take me out. In fact, I don't think we're called to take ourselves out of the equation. I think we're called to surrender ourselves and, and include ourselves in the equation. So I told a story years ago about how dumbly, how stupidly I tried to use a water pick to do a sinus rinse when my sinuses were clogged up. Guess what happened? A water pick. It's, sh- oh, my word, Tim. It's like you, oh, my word. Blood came shooting out of my nostril. You know the dumbest part? I used a water pick, which is used to, I'd be like a, like to, Floss your teeth with high... It's like a pressure washer for your teeth. I tried to clean my nasal sinuses out because they were clogged. Blood came shooting out of my nose. And I said, holy cow, maybe I'm angling it wrong. And I tried again on the other nostril. Blood came shooting out. And when I shared that story on a Sunday morning, I was sick. And then I was... Now I was in a different kind of sick pain. When I shared that story on a Sunday morning, you would think the congregation enjoyed my pain too much. Exactly. That's what it felt like. It felt like I was going to dig all the way up to my small brain. And But the church laughed so hard that it almost hurt my feelings. Like it almost made me go, whoa, hey, you're enjoying. Yeah. Anytime it's the truth, yeah. the truth is extremely funny. Learning to be okay with our imperfections and our brokenness talking openly about what's going on, but not just talking about it for, for public consumption, but really really going deep with Jesus and learning to face this, these dragons. This is healthy. This is Christian. I think that the, one of the s- spirits of the age is not atheism, it's apathyism. I, I don't think it's that people are convinced there's no God. I think people just are convinced that nothing matters. Uh, nothing matters, no one cares, so go do whatever makes you happy and just try not to stop anyone else from trying to go do what makes them happy. 
And I, I would love, I would love to inject such healthy brokenness, such joyful imperfection, such authentic oneness with Jesus without any perfection. We are not perfect. My walk with God isn't perfect. He's perfect. My faith is always going to be in process. But man, what if we could inject what it's like to enjoy the gift that is this life? Stan is such a gift. Amber is such a gift. Each one of you is such a gift. And you didn't do anything to get here. You didn't earn your existence and you don't earn Jesus' love for you. But what if we could just live in the glory that is on offer to us in this, in this hour, in this time? It's the best time to ever live and we're in it. And we're on the right side of the cross. And I'm not saying we're going to be perfect, but what if we could just manifest, not preach at the world, but manifest the kind of life that causes other people to go... That to me is the highest, the highest way of evangelism. It's not argue someone into a corner and tell them they're a sinner and then, and now they're legally required to pray this prayer. It's if they want, if they don't, if they can't see a beautiful Jesus. And it's one thing to see a beautiful Jesus, but a lot of us see a beautiful Jesus, but we see such an ugly us that we don't think it's possible for ugly us. Oh man, I have one friend and it, it breaks my heart. I have one friend, he's so eaten up with shame that he says things like, I think maybe I should just quit trying to serve God. I'm never going to get it, and I suck so bad, and I feel like such an utter failure. Like, do, you, do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's not just seeing such a beautiful Jesus, but it's also finding a way to, to have, I don't know, finish my thought for me. It, it, it's imperfect. Come to so messy. Come to it's a messy it, and let him clean messy. Let and I think it's helpful when we talk like Maria Bamford and when we talk like Gary Gallman, because as long as people like my friend think everyone else has it together and they're the only one, yeah. then the, <sighs> you're talking about that like how do we do that like I feel like that's why I'm always like back to God's grace because it lowers the mountain and raises the valley amen and it puts all of us on the same so I think what Christians need to be better at is not manifesting a Christian life but is manifesting truth and walking in grace that is empowering us yeah to do any good that we do it's because of the grace that's empowered us. It has, and when you were talking about that woman, Maria Bamford, and you said, I don't know why, but I feel like what she's doing is Jesus. I was sitting there thinking like, yeah, she is, because she's walking in grace and truth. Yeah. She's being humble and truthful. And that's, yeah. that's, oh. that is the environment yeah. that hosts Jesus. Here's what I hear you saying. That what we're to manifest is not an even better l- l- version of living this thing out, but rather more manifest the grace reality that's constantly surrounding us as we're right now. You know, God exalts those yes. who humble themselves and will humble those who exalt themselves. So I always... Um, and grace makes humble. talks about that in um, Reckless Grace. Grace doesn't just empower Correct. you, it also humbles yep. you. Yes, yes. I should pray. 
I should pray. Why don't you guys get in a line up here, if you don't mind? Thank you for allowing me to go so long. Oh, okay, so Maria Bamford says, when people are like, so Maria, what you got going on? What you working on? What's next for you? What's the next season of your life? What's the next chapter going to be like? What you doing? What you up to? What are your plans? What are your dreams? What you working on, girl? She goes, oh, uh, uh, she has a little baby voice. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> what? What? Maria, what? Uh, yeah, I finished early. I- I'm done. <laughs> she's not trying to achieve anything anymore. She's just like here, and she's freaked out by people who are so productivity-minded, and they're always, yeah. She has these amazing voices. Holy Spirit, grace, grace and peace in Jesus' name. Grace, grace and peace. Grace, God, more grace. God, I I ask for solitude, silence, and stillness, not every day and not all day, but in moments of the day, so we can become aware of our dragons and not flee them, not hide from them in Jesus' name, that we can begin to arm ourselves. And Holy Spirit, there's different kinds of dragons. There's different kinds of dragons, different breeds, different breeds of dragons, and they die different ways. So you need to help us. There's not cookie cutters. Holy Spirit, we need you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We want, Jesus, we want to swing a big sword of the Spirit. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Amen. Amen. Thank you for... uh, Wednesday whiteboards are me basically chewing my food and then spitting it back onto the plate. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not even digested yet. Okay.